Welcome to Periods, Poos and Pimples. My name is Jacinta and I'm the founder and nutritionist of Arenda Women's Health, an online clinic specializing in all things skin, gut and reproductive health. This podcast is for all women who have ever had some level of confusion in regards to their health. Whether you're battling with a skin condition, menstrual cycle disorder, fertility issues or gut issues and you just want to understand what is going on and what you need to do from people who know what they're talking about. In each episode, I'll be speaking with experts in the realm of women's health to give you the highest level of education that you'll need to develop a deeper connection with yourself and your body. Although this information will be super insightful, this information is not for diagnostic or treatment purposes. And please ensure you speak with your medical professional before implementing any treatment protocols. Please do keep in mind, as we may refer to research or specific pathophysiology of conditions, when we're referencing male or female, it is specific to the gender that's assigned at birth and pronouns used are specific to the individual discussed. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to you joining us on this journey. On today's episode, we have MTHFR methylation and histamine expert, Joanne Kennedy, joining us. Joanne is a naturopath based in Sydney and has helped thousands of individuals with chronic health issues to find answers and provide long-term solutions. With her previous experience working at MTHFR Support Australia and years of extensive clinical practice, Joanne has accumulated an abundance of knowledge in the realm of assessing biochemical individuality and environmental exposures that can be burdening an individual's methylation pathways and significantly impacting their health. Today, Joanne and I will be delving into the topic of methylation, specifically in relation to histamine intolerance, which can affect so many different conditions, including acne, rosacea, perioral dermatitis, anxiety, IBS, and so much more. So thanks so much for joining us today, Joanne. I'm so excited to go through this topic with you. Hi, Jacinta. I'm so excited to be here. It's such an important topic that clinicians and patients need to know a lot more about. So thank you so much for having me today. No, my pleasure. So let's start off with what is methylation? Where does it occur in the body? What's its role? Tell us all. Okay. So methylation is a biochemical process which occurs in every cell of our body. Okay. And without it, we would not be alive. And it actually occurs in all living organisms. Okay. So it's very, very important. And what methylation is, is whereby a methyl group, which is a carbon atom and three hydrogens, is attached to a substrate. And that substrate can be DNA or RNA. So it's obviously extremely important for cell replication division, so fertility, for instance. It also attaches to hormones and neurotransmitters and nerve cells and immune cells. And it's like an on-off switch. Okay, so it switches on the functioning of an enzyme, which is very important. However, it also switches off the functioning, which is also important because we, we need, we need a, a balanced, we, we need our enzymes to be working in a, in a balanced way, not sort of being pushed too, too far. Okay, so when we're looking at methylation, there are a lot of enzymes in the body that require a methyl group, and these methyl groups are referred to as methyltransferase enzymes. Okay, and if you do a Google search for those, there's like 200 of these methyltransferase enzymes. Okay, so the, the name is always going to end with methyltransferase. For example, we've got catechol methyltransferase, COMPT enzyme that breaks down estrogen and dopamine and adrenaline. We've got histamine N methyltransferase enzyme, which breaks down histamine. We've got phenylalanine methyltransferase enzyme, which breaks down phenylalanine. 
So all of these enzymes require a methyl group, and there's like 200 of them. Okay, so uh-huh. these are the enzymes that we're really thinking about in clinical practice because this is what we can make really amazing impacts with um, for our clients when they have issues with the when they don't have enough methyls for these enzymes to be working properly. Okay, yes. so how do we know what enzymes aren't working properly? Well, we we ask questions and we delve into a patient's case history and what's going on with them to ascertain what's what are their likely what are their likely issues? Do they have histamine issues? Do they have high adrenaline and stress and anxiety? They have estrogen detoxification problems. Like, what are the enzymes that are likely going to be impacted by a reduction in methylation? Yes. Okay, great. And essentially because you said that's happening in every single cell within the body, we then know that that's going to have quite a systemic effect if there was any issues with methylation. And it's never just only say one particular condition that you're like, that is a methylation issue. It can be such, cover such a broad range of symptoms. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. Like it's, it's not a diagnosis of a disease mm-hmm. state. It's just an important biochemical process that we are aware of that can be impacted by the environment and impacted by the environmental things that we see in our patients every day, like gut issues, like stress, like mold illness, like oxalates, like candida. So that's the issue is we can, that's why it's so exciting methylation now from a naturopathic point of view is we actually have the tools and the resources and the know-how to think about a person's biochemistry, including methylation. Um, when when we're looking at their overall health. So it's their overall health and what's going on with them, why they present in clinic, and that can throw their methylation pathways out. Okay, so that's what mm-hmm. we're looking at. What can be throwing the methylation pathways out? Okay, so they're not methylating particularly well. Okay, so you don't just go in and say, I'm going to fix methylation is you fix the underlying causes that are causing disruption to your biochemistry. And it won't just be methylation. It will be other pathways like the sulfation pathway. So it's just it's understanding it. It's just having a think about it as a clinician in the back of your head, not overwhelming your patients too much and just being like, okay, we want to know what your homocysteine levels are, obviously. Are you absorbing the important nutrients for methylation, B12 and folate, et cetera? And, um, and just understanding, hey, look, we can get your methylation improved. That will be the icing on the cake. You know, you've got, to fix the, you've got to fix the cause first. And when you're fixing the causes of ill health, that's when people will feel a lot better and then they'll start methylating well. And often you won't need to supplement with methyls if you get, if you get, the, if you get it right with the, um, the if, you get it, if you get it right with the absorption of the right nutrients for methylation or, you know, treat, understanding what's driving low histamine, fixing that, that will give you the best outcomes. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of then what we were just saying with MTHFR and all the other genes that can really impact methylation, the emphasis needs to be not so much on trying to control that gene just specifically we know there's so many other things that are then burdening that methylation pathway and actually that's driving the issue to begin with absolutely you yeah. know any these genes that we're looking at that you can test they're not they're not diagnostic of anything no no and we you know it's very simple with mthfr you know like it donates a methyl group to folate so many of our patients aren't eating enough folate oh they're exactly not enough green leafy vegetables or they've got SIBO you know SIBO will cause malabsorption of 
of folate, you know, due to the inflammation and the reduction in some of the pancreatic enzymes and brush water enzymes that you need to absorb your folate. Uh, then, you know, they, they don't have enough, obviously, methylfolate. And, yeah. and, and it so falls down when it comes to B12, you know, like, so B12 absorption is, you know, our B12 levels in, 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 a, in my patients is a dismal, you know. They're never really, because mm-hmm. it's stress, it reduces hydrochloric acid and SIBO and they're not, they're, they're not absorbing protein properly. You yeah. know, and then we have methionine, which is sulfur-based amino acids. So it's just, you know, it comes down to absorption and intake of these nutrients that is really important and what we see day to day is happening in real life real to real right now not a gene mutation yes exactly it's all the little habits that we're doing across the course of the day that can then significantly place that burden on methylation yeah so what are then some of the markers that you're looking at first to investigate to understand an individual's methylation status Uh, so homocysteine is the one thing i will look at straight away okay so when people have high homocysteine, okay, that does mean that they are not moving their homocysteine around to make methionine, which mm-hmm. will make SAMe, your methyl donor. Okay, and this can this is really due to a malabsorption of specific nutrients that you need for that recycling, mm-hmm. like methylfolate and methyl B12 and choline, okay? And, yes, when we're doing, looking at a gene, the MTHFR C677T homozygous, because that, that can lead to a 70% reduction in your folate, methylfolate, okay? Mm-hmm. But we do know that. So anyone with MTHFR C677T, it, you know, you want to test their homocysteine because if it is high, due to that gene mutation, then we need to be lowering it, you know. And if these are the people that might need some methylfolate to help reduce their homocysteine levels along with methyl B12 and some B6 mm-hmm. um, because it is a cardiovascular risk, the blood clotting risk, okay. So these people often might not feel unwell, but they could, you know, it's a it's stroke, heart attack, and, and the and high homocysteine will damage the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. You know, can lead to neurodegenerative diseases like early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. So, you know, this it's more preventative. You know, it, it, it is linked, linked to insulin resistance, so PCOS as well. Um, but often, you know, there is research around um, depression and anxiety. It, it, these are such, multi, you know, depression and anxiety is so multifactorial. That's exactly right. You know, you know, most of the time if you educate the person around getting folic acid out of their diet and they'll stop eating gluten, you know, it's such a major cause of depression and anxiety, you know, and, and, and we know that inflammation is the major cause of depression and why are they inflamed? Do they have, are they eating a really inflammatory diet? Do they have SIBO? Do they have very high histamine? Okay, yes. so we can't, you can't just say, oh, they have high homocysteine, therefore that's why they're depressed. It's, it's not necessarily the case. No, no. I remember reading the Grain Brain book quite a few years ago and that was all about the inflammation that was stemming from the gut that would then cause that kind of neurological inflammation within the brain exactly. as well. And then that was kind of setting up the cascade for depression as well. Exactly. That, it, it is the major cause of depression outside of a sort of emo- emotional turmoil and stuff like that. Yeah, so... Yes. Um, it's just being aware of all, all causes, not just 
honing in on, on one thing. Yes, for sure. So back to the testing and the investigation. So we'd look at, met- at uh, homocysteine, sorry. We yeah. would see whether that was low or whether that was high. And we understand with homocysteine, the goal is to try to reduce it because we know that that can be neurotoxic. But by it also reducing, we then know that that whole pathway of methylation is functioning better, which means you know, DNA replication is working better, detoxification is working more effectively and so on. Now, we mentioned with homocysteine that we need to think about recycling it back to methionine, and that requires your, you know, your folate, your B12, it requires choline. How about in terms of trying to pull that homocysteine down to make one of our most important antioxidants being glutathione? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, when, when you're looking at homocysteine levels, homocysteine has two roles in the body. One mm-hmm. is to make SAMe, your methyl donor. And the other one is to create, is to um, provide the sulfur required to make glutathione and for the sulfate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just because you've got high homocysteine doesn't mean that you're low in sulfur, in, 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 in being able to make glutathione. Okay, yeah. you know, we know that the gut microbiome will provide some sulfur if, if, if homocysteine is, is too high. Okay, yes. so you, your homocysteine might be too high, not not because you've got it's because of a genetic mutation on intertrophar. That that is true. That mm-hmm. is a thing, right? That is true. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not. You need to go and provide people with some N-acetylcysteine or some glutathione just mm-hmm. to get that. Okay, what if they've come in with high homocysteine? Okay, well that's a cardiovascular risk. We need to work on that. But they might be presenting with some other issues such as SIBO or candida, which is actually causing them to be very inflamed in their, in their gut. You, mm-hmm. you, you fix that. You don't, you don't have to think, oh, my God, they've got high homocysteine, therefore they're inflamed because of that. It's not. It, it's going to be due to something more in the environment. It's just a little flag. It's kind of just like, hey, there's something going on in the body. You need to do maybe a bit more investigation, figure out where that inflammation is coming from. And the thing is, this is the thing. If someone is inflamed, they are are releasing histamine. Mm -hmm. And the histamine, if you start pushing methylation too quickly without getting to the cause of why histamine is high in the first place and you give these people methyls, they can get worse. Mm-hmm. histamine down in the central nervous system very readily and quickly without fixing the cause of why it's in there in the first place and that can make people anxious it can cause insomnia make their skin worse give them headaches migraines etc mm-hmm. okay so you just got to be really really careful of you know if someone comes into you with histamine symptoms and, and high homocysteine you want to get the histamine down first before you start trying to Pushing lower those pathways. yeah that's right and, you know, we've got to understand what our patients are coming to see us for. Yeah, absolutely, and connect the dots. You know, they don't feel well. They don't care as much about their bike industry as we do. <laughs> they, they, they don't we just think, make... They're not as interested, you know. They just no, we be... just become nerds. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But the big, you know, whenever I see, whenever I get sent, you know, a whole bunch of tests, genetic tests and organic acids, Dutch hormones, blood, blah, blah, stool testing, mm-hmm. the first thing I look for is homocysteine mm-hmm. and the Thing I look for is oxalates if they've done yes. an organic acid test because those things will disrupt your methylation ex- excessively. Okay, so when your homocysteine is low, it means that there is something 
driving it down. And it's something quite insidious like oxalates and mold illness. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is your homocysteine is being chopped up by sulfur because you are dumping sulfur in the urine because the oxalates are hogging up the transport carrier for sulfur and you will start dumping sulfur. And this is where it becomes, people become very chronically unwell. Oxalates themselves are going to make you feel really, really unwell. Um, the thing with oxalates is it uses up a lot of your B6. Mm-hmm. And so without B6, you can't clear pyrroles from the spleen, right? This is yep. where pyrroles is coming from. And then you're so inflamed, you've got so much histamine and your homocysteine's low, so you're not making much SAN-A to break it down and your glutathione is just, is just not adequate to get on top of all the inflammation that's occurring. So yes, this, this is a really big problem. If you see chronically, chronically ill patients, people that have been, you know, they'll, they've got high, all these people have high histamine. And they'll present, they'll say, I've done, I've had SIBO treatment before, I wasn't better. I've done gut uh-huh. before. I, they've got balanced hormones, you know, and they, they, if you go, okay, maybe you didn't do it properly, send them away. They come back, oh, Joe, I did this. They'll do the protocol because they're so sick. They'll do a SIBO protocol. They're, they're, uh-huh. not, they're not improving. That's the key. You know, with simple SIBO and histamine, you get them on the low FODMAP, low starch, low histamine diet, and they're, they're better in two days. Like they feel yeah. so much yeah. better. People, great. They're not, they're not, they're not better. Right. Yeah. So if you haven't got a homocysteine test in front of you, I, I suggest you, you do that. And if it's low, you really need to start to look at oxalates and mold. Yeah. Okay. Now, one other thing that can cause low homocysteine is inadequate intake of sulfur. Right. So really the, the methylation pathway, you know, it, it there's so many ways for it to sort of start. But you really need to think about methionine being an important starting point. So methionine, when it's activated, right, you need to be absorb- eating animal protein, really red meat, eggs, great form of methionine. You need to be absorbing it. Good hydrochloric acid, you need to be absorbing a protein. So to get your methionine, methionine will be activated into SAMI. SAMI does its body, goes around the body, donates these methyl groups, these methyl transferase enzymes. Then it gets deactivated and converted back into homocysteine. So if you understand that if you need methionine to make homocysteine, if you're not absorbing your sulfur-based amino acids, then your mm-hmm. homocysteine will also, can also be low. Yeah. Okay? So you need to think about the person. Are they, you know, are they not eating enough protein, animal protein in particular? They're not absorbing yeah. it. Is that why their homocysteine is low? Yep. And you then got to think about all the upper digestive-related symptoms, whether they're showing signs of low hydrochloric acid production. All of that. So if they present, if they come in, they don't have oxalate symptoms, they don't have mold symptoms. You know, these are multiple chemical sensitivity, huge histamine burden. They have migraines, they've got fatigue, they've got decreased word finding, oxalates, bladder issues, vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis, you know, mm-hmm. these are these symptoms. If they don't have those, yep. think about are they just lacking intake of, of, of methionine. So let's delve into where the oxalates are stemming from. From my understanding, when I used to work for RN and went through all the organic acid testing and functional pathology training, we had a really good understanding that oxalates could be stemming from fungal overgrowth within the gut. 
Is that one of the main key sources where you see that it's coming from or do you find that there's other sources of oxalates? Well, that's a really interesting question, which was which I was corrected by my colleague, Melanie. I did a um, mm-hmm. gram live with her on oxalates last week and I was asking Melanie about yeast and candida and oxalate and she's right up on all the research and what is yeah. now thought is that the body is making excessive yeast and candida as some kind of protective mechanism against oxalate. Ah, so the oxalates comes before the fungal overgrowth. Yeah, apparently it's the other way around. Ah, interesting. Okay, so that's what she said. Um, she's, she's dug, Melanie works for me because she had yeah. issues and mold illness. Okay, it's yeah. such a specialised area yeah. and she's a gun. She's amazing. So she does that. Uh, I mean, I can talk about the biochemistry forever, but it's just it, you, she's very hands-on in treatment. Yeah. But it's um, mould. Mould is such a huge problem. It is mm-hmm. so prevalent. We have to all be on the lookout because patients are so sick with mould illness. They'll say, oh, no, there's no, no mould in the house, but they had they were living in a mouldy house. They took all their possessions with you. The mycotoxins are in the body. Oh, the mycotoxins, they can just and try to try to treat them too because it's such a systemic thing. I know I've seen some clients that have tried to treat the conditions such as like hives or rosacea, and you can go and go and go on and on with the gut. But if they're living in an environment, that has mold. I remember one client, she didn't realize how much mold there was in the windows. And as soon as she moved houses, she was, all of her symptoms had reduced by probably about 80%. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so prevalent. You've got to be on the lookout for it. You've got to think about it with every patient. I've got patients all over, I've got patients all over the world, like in Indonesia, in Scotland, in Sweden, mold, mold, mold. Okay. So, you know, you know, I, I can pick it up like that now. You know, these are the mm-hmm. patients that some of them, when they come into clinic with me, they'll, they'll off, they just look unwell and they'll be like, oh, like just can you just, they'll have chemical sensitivities. I'll be like, oh, the, 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 the candle in the reception is, you know, stressing them out. You know, they, they're really, really cold. They have multiple, multiple food intolerances. These are the people mm-hmm. that are next to nothing, you know, like you just classic histamine symptoms, um, Decreased word finding, major mental cognition issues, major skin issues. It's just all yes. of that. And it's, and it's, so I really, if you go, if it's a bit overwhelming for you, I really think what you should do, you test for homocysteine, mm-hmm. just get an understanding of that. You know, if it's low, just be like, wow, so what's driving this? And it's, it's obviously mold. You've got to refer to a mold specialist for that patient to really um, get a grip on what they need to do. Because it can cause, well, it can cause cancer. Yeah, well, that's right. Especially when it comes to mold, it's such a, it's such a hard one because you've got to have such difficult conversations sometimes with people if they're living in that kind of environment. So um, I've had to be there a few times, and it's tricky because it's not just a matter of changing a few things in your diet to try to remove mold from the diet as much as as possibly can. It's everything in the actual external environment as well. That can really drive that. It's really a really difficult um, space to practice yes. in. So Melanie had mold illness herself and mm-hmm. out of the moldy house and, you know, she is amazing at the way she can actually convince people it's the best thing they'll ever do is to move. <laughs> yeah. So, but, no, it, it's really tough, but, like, that's the thing. Like, I, I think you understand, like, these patients, so many of these patients have spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars 
on treatments and it's not yeah. you know and it's like so you it, you know it's just all about trying you know con- convincing them and I'm like working with them to get it understanding that it is such a driver of these issues and then they won't be spending all this money on doctor's appointments going forward. Ah, absolutely. And I think it's when you can see that the client has such an extensive history. So the few cases that I have had that are quite uh, the mold or muscle activation syndrome, you can see that the history is so extensive that they've seen either multiple practitioners and it's just symptom on top of symptom yeah. that keeps accumulating over yep. years and a lot of treatment done just on trying to stabilize the mast cells and control the histamine release, but not so much Very actually good. on trying to identify whether it's SIBO or oxalates or um, the mold or anything. No, it not at all. It, it doesn't work. You just got to, you got to remove yourself from the environment. It's pretty obvious. Pretty yeah. Absolutely. So in our clinical practice, we see a lot of histamine intolerance, like with conditions such as like rosacea, endometriosis, dermatitis, and so on. A lot of my clients, I tend to explain about the histamine bucket and how much that, you know, it's really related to the amount they might have within the course of a day. And then that can kind of contribute to a lot of their symptoms based on their rate of excretion of that histamine in relation to the amount that is either being consumed or, um, or, you know, being produced within the body. So in terms of them with your clients that you're working on histamine intolerance, what are some of the main treatment goals that you're first trying to work on to address that methylation histamine issue? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's understanding what's driving up the histamine in the first place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the major causes of high histamine is definitely SIBO. Okay. Mm-hmm. So SIBO causes huge inflammation in the small intestine uh, that releases histamine, not necessarily from mast cells. You know, that's the thing. We've got a lot of Mm. histamine can come from epithelial cells in the gut and they make histamine on the spot under duress. Mm -hmm. So they're not degranulated like like mast cells in in particular. Mm. They are going to make um, histamine on the spot due to inflammation. And then the Dow enzyme is very concentrated in the small bowel, okay? So it is throughout the gut and many other organs, but it's highly concentrated in the small intestine. If you've got an inflamed small small intestine, your um, production and excretion of dowel is going to also be hindered, okay? Mm -hmm. The net result is you're going to have uh, more histamine being made and less ability to break it down, okay? And then at the same time, SIBO causes malabsorption of important nutrients for methylation. Mm-hmm. So it causes absorption of folate and B12. Mm-hmm. Okay. So therefore, you know, that's going to hinder methylation and hinder your ability to break down histamine. Okay. And it's going to hinder your ability to detoxify estrogen. And estrogen is the main major cause of histamine. So for many people, we're looking at, at SIBO. Um, you know, definitely the whole candida yeast thing, well, you know, I think the oxalate issues turn that on its head a bit so if someone has chronic chronic yeast i mean unless they're eating a lot of sugar you know there's some people mm-hmm. that they're, they're sugar addicts and you know it's probably mm-hmm. about it. but if you've got a lot of yeast candida that it's that will drive up histamine as well and um as well as estrogen so estrogen and will significantly increase histamine yeah uh, so and then we've also got mold illness and oxalates, which, you know, is more heading into the muscle activation syndrome picture. Mm-hmm. 
That's what yeah. I, that's, how, that's how I see it. And how about in relation to hormones, like the histamine and the hormones? You mentioned estrogen a few times there. What do you clinically see in an individual's menstrual cycle in terms of whether it could be um, like, you know, PMS or any other kind of symptoms that you see throughout the course of the month that connects the dots with their hormone regulation and histamine? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's headaches, mm-hmm. um, worse at ovulation or before their period and migraines, vertigo, worse at ovulation or just before their period, nausea. Um, an increase in any of their histamine symptoms. So if they if they have acne or rosacea or they've got eczema, dermatitis, it's worse at ovulation or just before your period. It's classic histamine and um, histamine estrogen link. Then also also anxiety and insomnia definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, you know a lot of women are very anxious and have huge issues with sleep at mid cycle. Yes. Okay. Because they're so high in estrogen, they're not detoxifying. Why aren't they detoxifying it? Well, mainly because their gut's not good, right? That's why they're high histamine in the first place. And then it's just chicken and egg and it's just all this histamine is stimulating more estrogen and then Mm -hmm. this estrogen is stimulating more more histamine. And it's Mm -hmm. a really, really, really vicious cycle. And then, you know, as you get older, when you're in that perimenopause phase, when you're simply not making the amount of progesterone you did when you were younger, and slight changes in hormones are so powerful. So mm. even though even if you're having a regular cycle and you are ovulating, you know, if you're heading into your mid-40s, you know, your your progesterone is going to be a bit lower. And that can tip your histamine bucket over the top because the estrogen is unopposed. You know, and the estrogen down, estrogen down regulates Dow enzyme. So most women in perimenopause will not do well with eating a really high histamine diet. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah. Yeah. So basically, in relation to what you were just saying, then in summary, with the hormone regulation, basically, as they're going through perimenopause, it can a lot of these symptoms can flare up purely because I guess the egg quality is declining, progesterone production is reducing. So not so much that their estrogen is increasing. It's just that their estrogen is not being opposed by the progesterone. That's right. There is yeah. a really big deal that, that, that the balance of estrogen and progesterone. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Women come to me, with, they've never had histamine symptoms in their life and then they've sort of, you know, 45 and all of a sudden they've got anxiety, insomnia, hives. Yeah. Right. And at the same time, it's probably the time they're kind of maybe having a little bit more wine and stuff with dinner yeah, or the, you know, get with the girls and have the cheeses and then you've got all the histamine platter in front of you and then the hormones changing. That, that's right. That's right. They could tolerate these things before but not anymore. Yes. Like, you know, and the classic bone broth thing and the slow-cooked slow meals in winter and red wine, all that stuff. They could tolerate it before but not anymore. Yes. And, it's you no, know, it's annoying but I just... Um, the symptoms are horrendous low, like insomnia and anxiety and all that. It's, it's not nice. So most mm. people sort of get on board understanding that for this period of their life until they go through menopause, be, be mindful of, of, you know, how much histamine, how much very high histamine foods you consume. Um, yeah. some, will, some will have um, SIBO and things that are driving it, but I have had patients recently having chronic insomnia just simply due to eating too much histamine, high histamine foods at, yep. at, at 45 sort of years of age, never had sleep issues before, all of a sudden, and it's coming from histamine foods. So my understanding... 
From my understanding with the histamine diet, it's one that you could typically see a lot of change pretty quickly if it's the right thing for you in the sense that you could probably follow it for a couple of weeks and might begin to see an improvement in symptoms because you're reducing that histamine bucket. Do you often recommend for individuals to maybe try it just for a couple of weeks, see what their response is, or what do you feel? I very, very limited circumstances. So yeah, um, no, it's it's um, most of the, it's the gut microbiome driving up histamine yes. in the majority of cases, right? And it's you know it's SIBO, SIBO, yeah. right? It's SIBO. So it's um, you reduce you you need to go low FODMAP. And you need to do a low-resistant starch. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. So many of these cookbooks are just FODMAPs, whereas resistant starch will drive SIBO in a major way. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because they act like FODMAPs. So you need to go low FODMAP, low-resistant starch, low histamine. That, that will bring someone's histamine bucket down super fast. Yes. Okay? That, that gives people a, a lot of relief. Right? Yeah. And if it's a simple SIBO case, you need to fix the SIBO, obviously, and you always test and retest SIBO. You can't just fly blind with that. Because yeah, absolutely. You've got to retest. It's just you've got to do it. It's boring. For well, you patients. have to know if your treatment plan is actually you've working properly it. and then you're going to end up going off another track if you don't retest. 100%. So you've got to get that down and then you reintroduce FODMAP foods first and you see how they tolerate those. And if you know the SIBO's gone, it's, you know, good and their bowels are working, et cetera then you can start adding back histamines yes. and, and see how it goes, right? However, if a woman is, you know, in perimenopause, they have all the signs and symptoms of it, the age, whatever, you know, you will probably find in some cases they don't have SIBO, they don't have gut issues, it's simply hormone, mm-hmm. a natural progression of hormone um, imbalance that they are not going to thrive on having a heap of history. But I'll just say to them, you know, if you go out for Japanese, don't have a miso soup and a wine. Choose. That's exactly right. Yes. Have a miso, have one wine, yeah. right? Have a wine if, and, you know, don't go crazy on all the soy sauce. Just see what you can tolerate, you know, yes. and, and, and be mindful if you are at mid-cycle that it could cause you insomnia that night. Yeah. Right? But, that's that's you know most most people will have some massive underlying cause of why they they've got such a high histamine bucket, but there are the, the few women that are really going to be sensitive to the histamine estrogen. I mean, mm-hmm. you can start working on estrogen detoxification and, and increasing their progesterone, but but I clinically find they will do much better if they really stay clear and of those very, very high histamine foods. They're normally fine on avocados and citrus, tomato, eggplants, but that's all fine. It's Mm -hmm. the the fermented things. Yeah, and that's where sometimes I might actually, kind of like what you were saying, how you might tell clients, you know, don't have, you know, the miso soup and the wine. Um, And it's just about the accumulative effect of how much they're having in the course of the day. And we know, you know, a lot of histamine foods, they're good for you. Like you said, like, you know, there's, you know, avocado is great, salmon's great um, and so on. But it's often when you you know you could get a brekkie that has you know the avocado and maybe some sauerkraut on the side and then some salmon and then there's coffee and then that's stabilizing mast cells so contributing more to that histamine load and so on. But it's just about having maybe less of those and it's not a matter of complete restriction, but just watching the quantities. Oh yeah, it's all about it's all about the bucket. Yeah, yep. it's all about the bucket. 
Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I just want to make a point of is giving clients a bit of hope because I know a lot of my clients sometimes as soon as you mention histamine, they're like, oh my God, do I need to eat this way forever? Is this always going to be the thing? But from what I do in clinical practice and kind of by the sounds of what you do as well, it's, for, it's about addressing those underlying issues so you can improve their tolerance because you're addressing one of the key drivers of that histamine imbalance to begin with. So it's not something that they need to be on forever. It's just something that's just symptom control whilst you're trying to do the underlying stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. So yeah, it's, it's all about getting to the cause and giving them a lot of symptomatic relief, you know, because, you know, the thing with histamine, it's, it's inflammation, it's inflammation and it's damaging Mm -hmm. you and it's causing more inflammation and more histamine and, and these people feel terrible, but you lower the bucket and then you work on exactly fixing the cause. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, so many people are simply having histamine symptoms because their SIBO is so high from eating FODMAPs. You know, people can have histamine symptoms from eating FODMAPs mm. if their SIBO mm-hmm. is so high, which is, which is really confusing for some people. But it's yeah. absolutely dry. It can absolutely drive that much histamine to be produced in a small bowel that they have a histamine reaction simply from eating FODMAPs. So then on that note, in terms of supplementation and trying to support histamine and methylation and so on, you briefly touched on at the start about not going too crazy with all your methyl groups, because then that can significantly throw things off unless you actually have the information there and you're working with someone that knows the body pretty extensively. So what are the methylation heroes that are kind of your go-to? And I know that no two people present exactly the same and have to be on the exact same type of prescription. Um, But why is it so important to choose the right type of nutritionals when you're thinking about addressing methylation? Yeah. Okay. So I definitely think it's important to understand and to actually know you know, what the specific nutrients are for methylation, okay? Mm-hmm. So we absolutely need methylfolate, okay? So you need to think about absorption of, of folate. You know, where is it coming from? It's coming mm-hmm. from diet and you need to be absorbing in the small bowel, okay? Now, B12, okay? So methyl B12. So the thing with B12 is that you, you can take hydroxycobalamin and it will convert into methyl in the body slowly, mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't need to be, you don't necessarily need to push like that much methyl B12 on someone if you're Mm -hmm. unsure. Okay, and also, also you can use folinic acid. So folinic acid and hydroxycobalamin will convert into the methylfolate and and the hydroxy. So I always use a specific supplement that has those. I agree. I think with the folinic acid and even with the hydroxycobalamin, sometimes I've had to remind. Um, clients sometimes or individuals when they're thinking about, you know, MTHFR just being the only thing, the body's pretty smart. If you give it the, you know, some of the correct forms like folinic acid or hydroxycobalamin, it'll know, does this hydroxycobalamin need to become methylcobalamin and work in methylation or does it need to become adenosylcobalamin and work within the mitochondria? It's pretty, it's pretty switched on. It is pretty switched on. Yeah. Yeah, so, So I think, I think, you know, I think, I think going in with some um, folinic acid and some hydroxycobalamin is really, really nice. Um, you also need to make sure that you've got your, um, that the, per- you don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think supplementing with methionine is what you need to do. You need to mm-hmm. ensure that they could have good hydrochloric acid production and are eating animal protein and absorbing it. 
to get their methionine, right? And when you do that, you will be getting your sulfur-based amino acids, okay? So we need to understand that like the meth or the methylation pathway is not just the methionine, SAMe, it, it's the transsulfuration pathway. The, yeah, the downstream, the sulfur, yeah. The sulfur, the sulfur stuff, okay? So you need your sulfur-based amino acids, mm-hmm. okay? Now you can get that from your diet as long as that person doesn't have huge like sulfur you know, massive oxalates and massive sulfur issues with their gut, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a dietary form of um, methionine I think is lovely. You know, you're going to be getting more B12 from doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, B6 is interesting, okay? So I don't know if you've ever tested B6. If you test B6 in someone's blood, it always comes in high. Mm-hmm. And I, it's really, really common. So that's that's just interesting. interesting. Yeah, I haven't I, tested B6 before. I, I, I don't test it, but people come in with B tests. B6 tests all the time and it's high in the blood. So that's just interesting. I wonder um, why. Yeah, I don't know. I've said it all the time. Yeah. Um, so B6, right? So B6 is going to help lower homocysteine down the transalpuration pathway. Okay. But B6 is also going to impact your oxalates. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to understand if someone has low homocysteine right and they're they they do have a requirement for b6 okay because you need b6 to break down oxalate mm-hmm. however if you start supplementing with a lot of b6 which happens in chiral formulas the uh, b6 stimulates the cbs enzyme yeah and you're going to push that homocysteine down you're even further homocysteine down even further yeah okay yes. why does this person need b6 okay yes. fine because they're because they're churning through their B six because they've got an upregulated CBS pathway. Would you just say in that case that it's then just dose dependent? Because a lot of say, for example, standard B complexes will have a little bit of P five P, and it might be like you know fifteen milligrams. Whereas some of the individual activated B six formulas are about you know could be 25, 50 milligrams and dose it a couple of times per day. Yeah. But where yeah. would the kind of just standard B complexes come in? Yeah, I think a standard B complex um, with hydroxy and mm-hmm. right? we know I think we know the one we're talking about. Yep. <laughs> is is really nice to support someone's methylation gently. Yeah. You know, this is someone with, with their homocysteine is, you know, neither particularly high or low. Mm-hmm. But the through, methylation needs support. Entry methods with stress. So what a bit, you know, yeah. what are bees? Are bees are for stress, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Energy and stress, right? So if someone is, you know, a bit tired, a bit jolly, you know, corporate girls, blah blah blah, then mm-hmm. just a nice B vitamin, um, you know, to support to gently support their methylation. Okay, because and then, um, but be mindful. If that person is coming in with really high histamine symptoms, right, you don't want to give them some B vitamins straight away because mm. it, will, it can make their headaches worse. It can make their migraines worse. It's, it absolutely make their skin worse, right? So do they really need these Bs straight away? Do they need B12? Big problem, neuro, irreversible neurological damage without B12, right? So, mm. you know, this is how you, this is a, like, this is like a case, right? Someone has huge SIBO issues and huge histamine problems with skin, right? They've got rosacea and they've got eczema really badly. Yeah. And, and acne, right? Like hormone is stuffing up their hormones, right? And they come in and they've got low B12. 
really low, okay? And they've got neurological stuff going on, tingling and numbers. It's like dangerous, right? It's like, okay, uh-huh. liposomal hydroxycobalamin. Like it bypasses the gut. You, you need to get that in, okay? Yeah. I wouldn't be giving them any bees because it's going to because it's going to flare their skin. They don't care about methylation. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't want breakouts. They care about their skin, right? Yeah. So give them hydroxy, get them on a soap, SIBO, low histamine diet, right? Give them some digestive enzymes, some pancreatic, like like the, you know, there's a combo pan hydroxy, sorry, hydrochloric acid, pancreatic enzymes, enzymes, and brush water enzymes. There is one product uh-huh. that does all of that you will start absorbing your folate better. Mm. They're going to get off gluten anyway. Yeah. So absorb your folate better. So your folate, you're making some methylfolate, you've got the B12 to carry it, okay, and then you calm the histamines right down. Yeah. Okay? That, that's what you need to do. And then if they need some Bs, you know, I don't, I don't always supplement with B vitamins. I, I used yeah. to. I, it's just like they don't need it because they, they need so they need estrogen detoxification stuff like calcium to glucurate and they need they need a whole gut protocol. Oh, there's there's enough other supplements that they have to be on, let alone make some space they for these. Yeah. got ten things. That's right. Yeah, right? you can't just think about methylation as this sort of like I'm going to fix that because it it just will gently move forward. Mm. You do the. You just need to support. Yeah, it's basically like we were saying at the start, how it's just like that homocysteine. It's just the little red flag of being like, hey, look, there's something going on. That's right. And really what we need to do is try to support the clients to be able to identify whether it is the oxalates, whether it's the SIBO, whether it's the mold and so on and work through those systems. So then those conditions. So then methylation has less of a burden. That's absolutely right. You know, and it just, you know, you're churning through your methyl groups when you're stressed and you've got insomnia because you're itchy, right? Yeah. So, so it, it, you've got to un- understand that and, and, yeah. and just su- gently support the body. And in most cases, that's just all you need to do. Okay? Yeah. Low homocysteine is a whole different topic. It's, it's you know, because it, it, it's causing huge methylation problems, huge sulfation problems. These people are very, very sick. Very sick, but you need to. They need to first be working with um, a specialist in oxalates and mold to deal with that. Figure out what's causing that. Yeah, yeah, because it's just that's just one part of what's going on with them. Like, like it, that, mm. not a mold specialist, but it, it disrupts every um, biochemical pathway. It, it, it can cause huge issues with superoxide dismutase, and, as well as glutamine mm-hmm. and all the other major antioxidants. Like, it's just. It's it's not just sulfation and methylation. It's other pathways. It's, it's why these people are so so sick. For sure, it's just a roadblock for so many things. Like a lot of people could be presenting whether it is with hormonal acne, for example, and you know trying to touch hormones before you touch mold. It's not really going to it's no, not going to do anything. It's a huge cause of estrogen dominance. Yeah, mold illness yeah. and acute, and it disrupts your bile, which is going to cause major issues with like fat malabsorption and yeah. So it, it, it's very causative. You know, yes. Like these things, are, this is very, very deep down causative. Of They're the big like, environmental things. And it's it really highlights how much like our, like our case history is so important and why getting such a thorough case history into someone's, um, where they've lived or their, all their different exposures is so essential. It's not just what's happened in the last year. No. No. Um, and I even find that sometimes I might ask my clients, be like, oh, so what was happening? Where were you living this year? 
And it's just, you know, the look, it might be like, why is that relevant? But it's so important. It is, it is really, really important. It can go back, it can go back years and years and years because you get the mycotoxins in your body. Um, yeah. They stay there and, and they, you know, mold is penicillin too, isn't it? Mm. Mm-hmm. The microbiome in a really, really big way. Major cause of SIBO, major cause of estrogen dominance. Um, so when, you know, I think the more patients you see, you just get these red flags that stick out. Yeah. You, know, you see the common denominators. They, the people that send you like 50 texts, yeah. those people, yeah. they, have, they have seen amazing practitioners, you know, yeah. really, and they have never gotten any results. They've never gotten mm-hmm. better. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, like let's think about this is not just a simple gut microbiome. Yeah, this is a bigger picture. And then, and the thing with homocysteine, if you, the doctor will test it, doctor will test it if you, you know, if you ask nicely, and then it, yeah. it'll give you a really, like, it'll be like a big red flag. Right? Yes, it's like oh dear, this low homocysteine is a big problem, and then yep. then you can sort of. Uh, you can sort of work with that with the clinical picture. Mm. So for someone to get that tested through Medicare, because I know with Medicare, the way that it works, you have to be able to tick particular boxes X, Y, and Z to be able to get it covered through Medicare. I often get my clients to do homocysteine just through eye screen or eye medical purely just um, in case they're not able to get it done. What are some of the, I guess, do you know what the boxes are that might need to be ticked for homocysteine to be able to be tested for the GP? Uh, it's going to be, uh, I think it's potentially cardiovascular risk, um, yeah. stroke, yeah. heart attack. But, you know, I, I will of, often if a patient's sick enough, they do, their doctor is very um, mindful of how unwell they are and that they, yeah. that they don't, that there's something else going on with them. Is this a patient demographic? Yep. They can't. They just don't know, right? So they'll often test. Yeah, I, I'll get, I just give them a Douglas Family Morphine to test. It's like, I think it's $30 to get it tested. Yeah they need to but it's yeah. just it's just uh, it's such a it's just such a great te- test yeah it's, yeah I know I get so excited when I get blood test results in <laughs> have it's, it yeah. tells us so much yeah you no know, it's yeah. like let's it, it's like this is not going to be a little simple oh you're gluten intolerant case this is going to be a, a big thing and and something that you can um get your teeth into and work and work through methodically because yeah. it, it's giving Absolutely. a lot of clues as to where to start. Yep. And I even know for my clients, they actually love to see when something's outside of the reference range because they're like, yes, there's yeah. something that we can work with. It means something. So then to finish off, if you were to tell the listeners of maybe some key things, maybe three things that they may be making errors with to try to correct their methylation or things maybe in their day-to-day that they can do to maybe improve their burden on their methylation, what do you think it would be? Okay, I think the number one thing is to is to understand that taking methylfolate or methyl B12 or SAME might not make you feel well. Mm-hmm. It's not about pushing through that feeling nauseous, feeling anxious, depressed, making all your symptoms worse. It's not about pushing through that there's an amazing light at the end of the tunnel. That's if you're not tolerating them, well, there's a reason. Mm -hmm. So just understanding, don't go to the health food shop and get methylfolate. Mm Self-prescribe. And self-prescribe these things. 
okay? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. I think people really need to understand how stress is going to disrupt methylation, right? Mm-hmm. Stress will significantly reduce your hydrochloric acid production. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, without hydrochloric acid, you are not absorbing really important nutrients that you need for methylation. Number one is B12 and number two is going to be methionine. Mm -hmm. So this is very simple stuff and this is what we see in clinic all the time, right? Stress, low hydrochloric acid, reduction in your sulfur-based amino acids and B12. Mm -hmm. Okay, the other thing with stress is you're going to churn through your methyl groups when you're stressed. Okay, so methyls break down adrenaline. Yep. They, they, they really, really do. Um, the other thing that can happen, you know, is, um, you know, if the body is um, stressed, if you've got low hydrochloric acid, you're going to get, it's very, very likely that you'll get SIBO. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you'll have further reduction in your absorption of nutrients for methylation, mainly folate and, and B12 as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. You will start to, fall down simply due to a malabsorption of these important nutrients that we need, which we've always had in the environment before we had supplements. Okay. Yes. Yep. About about that. Okay. Yep. So so I, I do, you know, it's 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 understanding how we make our method group, groups naturally. Mm-hmm. Doing that is going to allow you to get on to control your health outcomes. This crazy prescribing of pushing methyl groups until you feel better, then stop. And then, oh, you feel anxious, then you like really paranoid, take some B3 and reduce your methyls. And- uh, I've heard this before too. Exactly. Just to, yeah, like use this B to counteract this. And it's like, actually, if that was causing a reaction to begin with, then it's clearly not the right thing. I just think it's really, really bad practice to be yeah. um, getting your sick patients who are also mental some mental health issues going on to use supplements and push and pull back on them it's crazy Mm -hmm. i really think that that's really really bad prescribing Mm -hmm. if you have a patient in front of you who is anxious and depressed or has very high histamine symptoms right and they're taking methyls Mm -hmm. pull them off them and see how they go right because you might, you will probably find that the methyls are making them worse. Mm-hmm. Okay, you just got to be really, really, really aware of that. Okay, you know, if you pull them off, fix the problems. What What are their health issues? You know, like what What are yeah. their health issues? What, yeah, what, that's right. What are their health issues? Right. Yeah. Then support them, and you inevitably find that they probably don't even need them. I think a really big emphasis should just be on everything what you were saying before, bringing it back to the gut. If the stomach's not working, then you're not producing your hydrochloric acid, you're not absorbing your bees, you're not absorbing your protein, then that's going to significantly impact pancreatic function and um, digestive enzyme secretion that will impact SIBO and it just has that flow-on yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. We've always got to think about what's going up with the upper gut. You know, Upper gut first. Upper yeah. gut first and it's such a huge part of our immune system. The mm-hmm. hydrochloric acid we, well, prevents microbes getting into our gut. You know, yeah. it's a really, it's a really, really big deal. So, um, 
we could probably go on for ages talking about gut. It's such a massive thing, but it really, it really is why even in particular, when we're thinking about the skin conditions that we treat, like acne, rosacea and periodermatitis, one of the first things I always start with, if I can see that there's upper digestive issues, is hydrochloric acid. Yes, yes. Um, and it's incredible to see, like even just after a few weeks, people be like, oh, my skin is less red. And it's like, yes. it's purely just from giving you some hydrochloric acid. Yeah, yeah. I really see the... Um, the di- when digestive enzymes fall down, when they're when they're not working at like at least ninety five percent, it's huge systemic problems. Yeah. The, the liver can take such a burden. I think you know it just is so good at doing what it does, right? It does. Yeah. We are you know all the lotions and potions we put on ourselves and the hair dyes and <laughs> alcohol and stuff. You know, like it's it's just churning through toxins and in in a lot of people it's 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 pretty robust, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, it, it will just do what it does. But when digestive enzymes fall down, it just causes a cascade of issues with the microbiome, malabsorption of nutrients. Malabsorption of the nutrients you need for your liver. Detox yes. Pathway, right? Yeah, well, even all your, like, your sulfur-based things, like even glycine, taurine, you need for biosynthesis and all of it. so on. All, all, all of it. And then, you know, that we have the deconjugation of toxins and estrogen will go back from the microbiome being disrupted, but back to the liver, right? So how do we mm-hmm. protect our liver? We protect our gut. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I really think um, so many people are focusing on a large bowel. We've got to get up here and focus on uh, small bowel digestion. Absolutely. It, it, it starts up here. It's yes, we were, absolutely. We were having this conversation the other day um, in my clinic. We're all just sharing different things or different protocols or whatever we might do with our clients in terms of trying to support their gut health. And one of the key themes was we were like, always start with stomach. Yeah. Start with stomach, then work downstream because you could try to give all the probiotics or all the things that you want for the um, for the large power. But at the end of the day, if hydrochloric acid production or stomach function isn't working as effectively as it should, that's that's just going to affect everything else downstream. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, I really find that um, a lot of the microbiome, those very expensive microbiome tests are not serving patients too well. Yeah. Because you know, it's not, it's, it's really, you know, mo, you know, 80% of IBS is SIBO, right? Oh, exactly. Exactly. Right? So just get that, um, get that underway. You know, if you, if you're converting your FODMAPs into gas, they're not getting to the large bowel where they should to, create short-chain fatty acids. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's usually SIBO. It's usually SIBO. That's what I yeah. really see. That's right. And even when it comes to microbiome tests, like I do run them on occasion. I probably do a little bit more SIBO than I do microbiome tests. But even sometimes before I'll run a microbiome test, I'm like really asking what is it that I'm trying to find and could I not just assume that they were going to be needing some prebiotics potentially to improve their gut microbiome? That's exactly right. stuff anyway. That, that's exactly right, you know, and um, I, I do them when I'm looking for yeast and candida. That's exactly right, same. Because of, the, because, because, of the, because of the oxalate issue that I'm highly aware of, you know, I, I really, because it's like some people have, some people can have oxalates without mould and vice versa. Yeah. You can have mould without oxalates, right? And, and, and the thing is, if they've got SIBO2 and histamine, what diet are you putting them on? Like it's, yeah. Low histamine, low FODMAP, low starch, low oxalate. Oh, and they can't tolerate sulfur either. Oh, and they can't tolerate sulfur. Just don't eat anything. It's very, it's very, these are the people where you're like, you just want to know 
yeah. 100% what, what is going to be the best diet because it, it's going to be restricted for a while, but it's like which, which part, which part where should we start first? That's right. And I, I think for myself, I'm always conscious of then any kind of anxiety that might provoke in them or any stress because at the same time, if you're kind of get, getting them onto all of these super restrictive diets and it's provoking more of a stress response for them, that, that kind of goes back to what we're trying to address, which is the stress affecting the stomach acid or the stress, you know, using up all those methyl groups and stuff. So we've got to find that balance between a really good prescriptive diet for their condition, but also nothing that's going to significantly exacerbate the stress response yeah, at the same I, time. I, I totally agree. And that's what, that's the difficult part of these chronically ill people. It's, and so many of them have done bits and pieces of restricted diets before and mm-hmm. they are scared. It hasn't helped them. And that yeah. they are, it's almost pushed them into eating disorders. Yep. Because they're so scared, yeah. and that's the, I'm so that's, cautious. Yeah. So you want it. So those people, I want evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Not evidence. Absolutely. That, like, so I'll do an organic acids test to look for oxalates. So yeah. I want to know about yeast and candida now that we know like how much is there to actually help protect against oxalates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know it's it, it it's getting the evidence to then like can you know explain to them why this is going to help. Well, that's right. And you know, yeah. and you'll know, hey, this will. This will help them. You'll feel confident about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Sharan, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate everything that you delved into today. And if our listeners wanted to try to find you anywhere, where are the go-to sources that they can try to find you? So my website, which is simply joannekennedy.com.au. And yep. I'm on Instagram at joannekennedynatural. Amazing. They're the two best places to find me. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I think what I might also do in the show notes, I might, if I can somehow pop a little methylation chart, that would be great. (laughs) So people can actually see what we physically mean by methionine to homocysteine, homocysteine, so on. It's so so much easier when you can look at it in a diagram. Absolutely. Yeah. As you were, as you were talking about it, I'm just picturing it in my mind. I'm like, all right. Yeah, this is how it works. I'm so glad I get those amazing diagrams. So I'm so, yeah. I don't know how I would have learned them without those diagrams. Oh, they just got drilled into my brain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love them. I think they're fascinating. Yeah, me too. I was such a nerd when I was learning yeah, yeah, I was. all of that stuff and just the ins and outs of everything. I was too. And then you start seeing patient after patient and, and it's like, yeah. let's, let's just get back to what is really happening in our patients in the, exactly in the environment and not get too bogged down with all of that stuff um yeah. think, you know as a clinician it's so good to have it in the back of your mind mm-hmm. going yeah of course you're under methylating doesn't mean i'm going to give you methyls because yeah it's going to make you worse let's let's fix it let's fix why you've got these issues and yeah and allow the person to have feel balance you know feel balanced they want to feel yeah they want to feel better but you know, even if it's a bit of a slow burn, but up better and better and better consistently. Not, mm-hmm. you know, you throw methyls at people and it's, oh, come off them, start them again, do this. Yeah, thing. not these waves. Very, very, it's very anxiety-provoking. So, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sharan. Well, I will pop your details in the show notes as well so people can find you. Great. Thanks. Cool. Thanks so much. Thanks.